Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We're trying to keep you up on the latest literature by spoon-feeding you all of that through your earbuds. Now, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering from this week. No girls allowed wasn't a good policy when we were kids. It's a worse policy in medicine. Second, don't let the name fool you. Subsegmental does not mean benign when it comes to PEs. Third, we've got a journal feed point counterpoint, Atomidate versus ketamine for RSI. And then we'll round it all off with the last article. I didn't think vaping was cool, but if I could do it with ketamine, eh, I might think differently. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the encouraging Rebecca White, Sam Parnell, Bo Stubblefield, Nicholas Sreika, Megan Hilbert, and Clay Smith. So here's the first article titled Salary Disparities Based on Gender in Academic Emergency Medicine Leadership out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. It's no secret that there exists a gender pay gap in medicine. Over recent years, it has been highlighted by many sources that women hold fewer leadership roles in healthcare than men do. And research has also shown that on average, women earn $20,000 less per year than their male counterparts. How about in emergency medicine specifically? These authors did a cross-sectional observational study collecting responses from almost 9,000 respondents over five years. Those answering the survey were put into four categories, no leadership, operations leadership, education leadership, and executive leadership. Overall, women held less leadership positions in emergency medicine than men did, a gap of 10%, 55% of male respondents reporting leadership roles, and only 45% of female physicians. Among the females holding leadership roles, these females did more clinical hours than the males did, by about 5%. And now what you've been waiting for, the money. It's all about the money. And female physicians were making less of it. For executive leaders, females made $54,000 less yearly. For operations leaders, $28,000 less. And for education leaders, $18,000 less yearly. I think that the cause of these differences should be made transparent. And more work needs to be done to highlight why they exist rather than that they just exist. If these differences are the result of biased systems, then we definitely have a problem. It's unlikely to be that simple though, since many emergency medicine doctors work on a fee-for-service model, and I doubt anyone is getting away with simply paying females less for the tasks that they do. Clearly, there are broad societal structures that are at work here. In a spoonful, though this paper isn't giving us the reason why, there are gender gaps in emergency medicine. Women hold fewer leadership positions and seem to make less money on average when they do hold them, despite working more clinical hours than their male counterparts. And the second article, titled Risk for Recurrent Venous Thromboembolism in Patients with Subsegmental Pulmonary Embolism Managed Without Anticoagulation, a multi-center prospective cohort study out of the Annals of Internal Medicine. The old narrative for pulmonary embolisms seems like it used to be something that was often not considered and thus missed. Nowadays, we're seeing the incidence of PEs increasing in both the US and Europe. CT angiographies have helped us to make many more of these diagnoses though, and we're seeing lower fatality rates as well. That said, there is still a lot for us to learn. With such good imaging, we're actually picking up on more and more subsegmental PEs. And current guidelines suggest that clinical surveillance without anticoagulation is appropriate 
in some of these patients, but this is based on low quality evidence. Is surveillance truly enough or is the risk of recurrent VTE too great? This trial was a multi-center international prospective cohort study, all words I like to hear, to evaluate the outcomes of low-risk patients with single or multiple subsegmental PEs who are managed without anticoagulation. These patients had bilateral lower extremity ultrasounds done, and those without DVTs were managed without coagulation. Excluded patients were those who were hospitalized, pregnant, had active cancer, a history of VTE, were hypoxic, or had some other indication for long-term anticoagulation. Now, technically, recruitment ended early in this study, but there were only 8 patients short of their projected number with 292 patients. Overall, though, 266 were actually included. By 90 days of follow-up, the recurrence rate of VTE in this population was 3.1% with a 95% confidence interval ranging as high as 6. This was higher than expected, but this is similar to prior systematic review data of patients with more proximal BEs. So I guess maybe a coagulopathic patient is a coagulopathic patient, no matter how subsegmental their PE might be. If you only consider patients who had multiple subsegmental BEs, then the reoccurrence rate was even higher, 5.7%, compared with just 2.1% if they had isolated PEs. If you were older than 65, then you had several fold higher risk of a recurrence of VTE by 90 days as well. There were only 8 total patients with recurrent VTEs in this study, 4 had proximal PEs and 4 had DVTs, none of the cases were fatal. This study is something really important to keep in mind. Taking into account the patient's age, comorbidities, bleeding risk, and of course their preferences, all of that will help us in treating these patients. In a spoonful, in patients with single or multiple subsegmental PEs without DVTs, the risk of a recurrent VTE in the next 90 days was 3.1% if they received no anticoagulation. This might change management decisions. And that brings us to the third article titled, Deciding Whether to Use Automidate or Ketamine as the Induction Agent of Choice for Rapid Sequence Intubation. Automidate should be the default agent for rapid sequence intubation in the emergency department out of the annals of emergency medicine. Alright guys, let's duke it out. You want to do RSI, but you don't want your patient to crash or be compromised hemodynamically, so you have two really good options. Ketamine or Automidate, which do you pick? This is the first of two articles which cover the reasons why you should pick one or the other. We're going to start off with all the reasons for Etomidate. Let's go. It's time to do, 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 do. These authors make the point that peri-intubation hypotension is strongly associated with an increased risk of mortality. So, since Etomidate has the lower risk of hemodynamic collapse, it really ought to be the default agent. No? If you think no, because there were studies that linked Etomidate with increased mortality in sepsis patients, consider that these studies were confounded by differences in patient acuity. Now, the classic reason to be scared of Etomidate is adrenal suppression. Prior reviews saw a decrease in cortisol levels after an Etomidate bolus. This turned out to pretty much be fake news, though, since there's no known clinical or mortality impact found for this association. So we're done boosting up Etomidate, let's take a snipe at the competition. Prior studies in rats, not in humans, have shown significantly lower left ventricular contractility and relaxation when given ketamine compared with etomidate. So, ketamine, at least in rats, might be a myocardial depressant, which could cause hemodynamic compromise in critically ill patients with catecholamine depletion. 
Lastly, on this side of the argument, two prior studies from the National Emergency Airway Registry, NEAR, which isn't perfect data, it's only observational, and the biases that exist were pointed out by the authors, but at the same time, these studies found rates of post-procedure and peri-intubation hypotension to be more common in ketamine than etomidate, meaning that more than theoretically, etomidate might even be a better choice according to real-world data. That's all we've got on Atomidate. Let's hear the other side of the story from a ketamine perspective. These other authors argue that ketamine is an indirect, weak sympathomimetic, which would lead to improve hemodynamics by limiting the uptake of catecholamines and thus making it a preferable agent in hypotensive patients. To address the Atomidate point about the near-registry data showing more harm with ketamine, these authors highlight the many problems with these studies including its retrograde design, its potential indication bias, recall bias, and patients receiving ketamine having been more likely to have difficult intubation risk factors. Data worth basing clinical decisions on would be better coming from a large RCT. Speaking of which, in 2009, there was an RCT evaluating ketamine versus Atomidate for RSI in acutely ill patients, and it found that ketamine was a viable alternative. This trial also found the increased odds of adrenal suppression due to Atomidate we were talking about, an odds ratio of 6.7 compared to ketamine. Though, as we said before, this might not actually mean anything since there's no clinical significance attributed to it, and we try not to treat the numbers. On that topic, earlier concerns about ketamine increasing intracranial pressure and trauma were recently found to be unfounded when compared with other induction agents. So before we close off on ketamine, don't forget that ketamine has other uses than just sedation. And these other properties could be helpful during intubation. For example, ketamine can cause bronchodilation in patients with asthma. That's good. Helps them breathe. Also, ketamine has analgesic properties, whereas Atominate is purely a sedative. So I'm not sure what your institution favors. And I'm not even sure that I have a Tominate available to me in my ERs. But if you've got it, then the final decision comes down to you. Choose wisely. And so that brings us to our fifth and final article, Comparison of Nebulized Ketamine at Three Different Dosing Regimes for Treating Painful Conditions in the Emergency Department, a Prospective Randomized Double-Blind Clinical Trial out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Something I try to think about before I leave the room of any patient is whether or not I've done anything to address the pain that they've been in so that I can make them more comfortable. The more options I have for pain control, honestly, the better. We just mentioned that ketamine has analgesic properties, which are probably most often obtained by giving a low-dose infusion. We need not limit ourselves to IV infusions, though, since ketamine can be given through pretty much any route. Nebulization is the tempting option we'll be talking about today. It could cause less side effects than intravenous, it avoids the awkward intranasal route, which not all patients enjoy, and of course, it means you get to avoid opioids. So, how best to use nebulized ketamine? This trial was a randomized double-blind superiority trial to compare three doses of nebulized ketamine for the management of acute and chronic pain. The dosages used were 0.75 megs per kg, 1 meg per kg, and 1.5 megs per kg. If you think those doses are high compared to infusion doses, then remember that bioavailability of nebulized ketamine is only about 20 to 40% that of IV ketamine, and the duration is about 20 to 40 minutes. The primary outcome was pain scores at 30 minutes. 
Here, all doses showed a clinically significant reduction in pain scores, and there was no additional benefit to higher doses. Sounds like ketamine took a page out of Katorlak's book. On top of that, compared with the data these authors already had from comparing IV ketamine to IV morphine, the reductions in pain were pretty much on par with those, so you're not losing any analgesic effect by going the nebulized route. They also saw less adverse events and less need for rescue analgesia. Nebulizers aren't always easy to get your hands on, but if you have one lying around, then ketamine nebulized seems like a pretty good option. Now, normally I would advocate for the lowest dose, but after highlighting the wide range of bioavailability, I might advise picking the middle dose, 1 meg per kg. It also makes the math easier. It would have been nice to see this done as a crossover design trial, where after the initial dose of medication, they were crossed over to a different dose and see how that affects the patient's pain, but it wasn't necessary per se. Just would have been fun. In a spoonful, nebulized ketamine might be your newest way at pain control. You don't even need an IV. Now, let's do the wrap-up. Everybody loves to wrap up. From the first article, even in emergency medicine, there are gender differences in who holds leadership positions and how much they get paid. In a perfect world, we might get a 50-50 split, but come on guys, we could probably at least do better than we're doing now. From the second article, while the name makes subsegmental PEs sound not super significant, their clinical course without anticoagulation is not benign. The recurrence rate of VTEs at 30 days in these patients was 3%. Now the next two articles were our point-counterpoint Atomidate versus Ketamine. Ketamine has other useful effects, but Atomidate might theoretically be safer. Who wins? Well, you decide. And from the last article, a double-blinded RCT comparing three doses of nebulized ketamine were equally effective at pain control, and all of them were comparable to IV ketamine or IV morphine, which are drugs that we're much more familiar with. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.